Hear now the word of God. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury and he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired And inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you give us your Son today through your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In an age of blockbuster films and, and big event movies, as I, as I get older, I think the more I start to appreciate movies and stories that are more focused on people and less focused on explosions. Very unusual for me. I have a long history of loving movies with explosions in them. But I think something happened when I got into my mid-30s where I just said, I've seen all the explosions. I've seen all the car crashes I can see. Um, uh, my wife and I were just watching the movie Emma this, this last week, and we were just appreciating how, it, how much more interesting people are than car crashes and plane crashes. You know, people are really, really interesting, and that was one of the things that really came through as we were watching that movie. Well, there was another movie that I, I was thinking about lately that really exemplifies this idea of character over action. 
This idea of getting to know a person and understand a person ends up being so impactful. And that's, it's a classic movie. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've never seen it. Maybe people just tell you you're supposed to see it and you keep thinking, someday I'll watch it. But that movie is Citizen Kane. Um, the movie begins with this fellow, and it's an 80-year-old film, so I'm sorry if I'm spoiling things in this 80-year-old film. <laughs> but um, the, the movie opens with Charles Foster Kane, and it's him dying. He's in bed. The movie opens with him dying, and as he's dying, he says that mysterious word, Rosebud. And then he dies. And the whole movie, you're just seeing his life story. You're seeing what's going on in his life. And by the end of the movie, you realize that this word rosebud relates to something that happened when he was a child. And this idea of wanting to get back to his childhood, wanting to get back to this moment of his rosebud sled, um, stuck with him all of his life. And it ended up being a part of him. And it ended up being a part of why he did what he did and what drove him and why he acted the way he did. Well, one of the things that you see is this, that you learn this one core truth about Charles Foster Kane. And the idea is that this is something that defines him and defines his life and drives him. And so you get to understand the man and you get to understand why he did what he did. Well, maybe you've noticed this so far, but in the Gospel of John, John is sort of circling around this one central idea in Jesus's ministry. And it is also this question of identity. It's also this core question about who is Jesus? What drives him? Why does he do what he does? What's his motivation? And that issue of Jesus's identity, Jesus's authority, all of it comes together in this passage, in this narrative here, in this moment where Jesus has this conversation. And so One of the things I hope you'll see is that if we study the life of Jesus, we we begin to understand his true identity. We understand, begin to understand what drives him, why he lives the way that he lives, why he teaches the way that he teaches. And over and over, John lays on thick this issue of the nature of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, and the importance of following him because of who he is. And so this morning, John takes us back to that issue Again, of Jesus's identity, but he does it in a way that focuses very importantly on the way he was rejected by those who should have known better. So here's the thing about studying a fictional character like like Citizen Kane, right? Um, Once you probe and explore this fictional character, psyche, there's nothing more to benefit from. You just understand a fictional character better. But when you know Jesus, it's the flip opposite because As you know him better, you know yourself better. And as you know him better, you understand those who oppose him too. Because he is the one who begins to tie your life. He's the one that begins to tie your purpose all together. And so this morning we will see exactly that. We will see who Jesus says he is. As a consequence, who his followers are. And then also as a consequence of who he is, what what Jesus says about his enemies and who his enemies are. See, who you are really orbits around this question of who Jesus is and what your posture toward him is, even if you don't believe in him. See, the question is, who is Jesus? Will you follow him or will you be his enemy? And so let's look at those three points this morning. First, we see who Jesus is in verse 12. He says it very plainly. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. 
Well, if you think about this subject of light, light, is, light can be kind of a Christian cliche if we're not very thoughtful about what it means. Um, and so we, we do need to, to sort of be reflective upon this, this notion. Obviously, light is a metaphor. Um, when Jesus walked around, you know, you sometimes maybe see medieval paintings and you see images of, of halos and glowing images uh, around divine people and things like that. Well, Jesus didn't have a, a light around him. It's not a literal light. This is a metaphor. What's it a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for understanding, illumination, clarity, truth, beauty, salvation, forgiveness. He uses this metaphor of light because when when light has a a source, an origin, whatever it is, it it floods the room that it's in. It floods the space in which it, it, it occupies. And so he's trying to get across with a word this this purity, this perfection, this fullness that belongs to Jesus. And so. When you and I have some kind of light, some sort of light to share, all we're working with is borrowed light. All we're doing is taking light that is someone else, that's Jesus, and we're sharing it. We're, we're giving a dim reflection of the real thing. But think, think a little bit about sort of the audacity of what Jesus does here. Jesus is, is saying he is the light. And I want you to, to sense the, the audacity of this because... One of the things that happens is you get, you get secular people, they want to sort of give lip service to Christianity. They want to show that they have sort of a, a passing appreciation for Christianity. And so you get this sort of condescending lip service from secular people. Uh, and they'll say this the old worn out cliche that Jesus was a good or a great teacher, right? He was a good man. He was a great teacher. And, and C.S. Lewis was very fond of pointing out that, that he was either a liar or he was a psychopath or he was exactly who he said he was. But you don't have in this character of Jesus somebody who you can just put him in a middle ground. They want to middle ground Jesus and yet there's no room in Jesus for there to be a middle ground. So saying that he is the light of the world puts Jesus in the lunatic class if he is not very God of very God, to quote our creed. Think of the arrogance. Think of the arrogance of Jesus' words here. We are used to religious teachers, leaders of world religions, um, telling us that they know the way to the light. You know, Muhammad, what does Muhammad do? Muhammad comes and he says, I am a messenger for Allah. I'm a messenger for God. I can show you the truth about God. And what, is, what does Buddha do? He says, I have some kind of enlightenment. I'm going to show you the way to the light. I'm going to show you the way to salvation. I'm going to show you the way to nirvana. But neither of these people claimed to be God. Neither of these people claimed to be the light or be the peace or be nirvana. They are modest compared to Jesus if Jesus is wrong about what he's saying here. Because Jesus made these outrageous claims that the founders of of world religions would never have had the nerve to say. Think of the specifics of the claim. He says, I am the light of the world, right? Jesus says, this is who I am. He doesn't say, he doesn't say I'm a messenger for the light. Uh, he's not a, a sign pointing to the light. He's not even a beacon holding out the light. He says, I am the light. I am the light source. I'm the one that the light comes from. I mean, imagine this. You go outside and, and your friend's with you and your friend says, there's a lot of sunlight out today. Nothing wrong with that statement. Imagine you go outside with your friend and your friend says, I am the sun and all of this light is coming from me. 
you, you'd call the paddy wagon or whatever. <laughs> you'd have him booked. See, there's an audacity to what Jesus is saying here. Because now, now here's the problem. We miss the audacity if we've heard it all our lives. If I said to you, Jesus is the light, I don't think anybody probably in this room, if you were raised in the church, you would not think to yourself, my word, what is this man saying? It just doesn't, it doesn't hit you that way. And so what we really need is we need to try to re-see what Jesus is saying for what it is, right? This is an outrageous claim by a man who is more than just a good man. He is more than just a kind man or a pleasant, benign teacher. There is a universe of difference between these claims and the claims of a good man who is not God. He's not an admirer of the light. That's us. We're the admirers of the light. That's what we're called to do, but that's not him. He's not a student of the light. He has not studied the light thoroughly. That's what we're all about, which, which we'll get to in a moment. Just understand, there is an enormous gulf between being a good but wrong man and what Jesus is doing here if he is wrong. Because who Jesus is, is everything. Who Jesus is becomes important. It becomes important not only to understanding him, though, but to understanding ourselves. But who does he say he is here in point one? He says he is the light of the world. But that leads to our second point this morning, because Jesus tells us who his followers are. You continue on in verse 12. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light of life. So, so Jesus has just told us who he is. I'm the light of the world. And now he follows it up by saying, if you follow me, you're not in darkness and you have the light of life. In other words, he is showing that there is an intimate connection, isn't there, between Jesus and who he is and his followers and who we are. So what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? At the most basic level, it means that you believe in him. It means that you learn from him. Um, he teaches that if we're going to follow him, we have to trust in him we, he, to bear our sins. We have to repent of our sin. We have to know that we need to change and we need to ask him to help us to live differently. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And all our lives are spent trying and laboring by God's spirit through the means that he gives us to become more and more like Jesus and less and less like our sinful selves. But being Jesus' follower means we study what he says and we live under his constant correction. The, the illustration I might use is, if you remember in the book of Exodus, uh, God rescues his people out of Egypt through Moses. And one of the things that God does to rescue the people out of Egypt is he leads them and he uses a pillar of fire during the daytime. And he uses a pillar of smoke at nighttime. And wherever God led them, they were supposed to follow, even if it meant walking through desert wastes, even if it meant living in really, truly miserable conditions, they had to go. And so they were always at his directive. They were always under his command. And so it's sort of like that. The Christian life is like that. Being a disciple of Jesus means that when we see the pillar go this way, we go. When we hear him speak in his word and he tells us to do something, even if it's not our inclination, even if it's not our favorite thing, we still do it. We still go. We submit. And so Jesus calls us to follow him. He calls us to pack up our things, sell it if we must, go where he indicates. And then he says two things specifically about 
his followers here in this passage this morning. The first thing he says is his followers don't walk in darkness. We don't walk in darkness. In other words, while so much of the world is, is, is deceived, while so much of the world carries its own sin around like a weighty burden on their backs, Christians are people who have been liberated from those things. We are people who know forgiveness. Of all people, we know what it is to experience forgiveness. And that means we also know how to give forgiveness because we've had those burdens lifted off of our back. Going back to that illustration of the pillar of fire again, think about this. The people walk, follow that pillar of fire. Um, They might walk in deserts, but they don't walk in darkness. They might walk in dangerous ways, but they don't walk in ignorance, right? They, they might tread in places that few people would willingly travel, but they're not abandoned to the night. In other words, it might be a, an uncomfortable lifestyle, but the one that they're following makes it all worth it. You see, it's better to, it would be better to pass through suffering and to know you are there by the appointment of Jesus for your own good than to live in exquisite pleasure Absolute comfort with no purpose, no guide, and no one to follow. Spurgeon one time said that he would find it intolerable to think that all the suffering he endured in his life was not measured out to him the way a doctor measures out medicine for his patients. He said, I would find it unbearable. To have meaning in life is to have an overall purpose for living, a reason why you wake up. And that is because the meaning comes from outside of ourselves. Meaning doesn't come from within ourselves. Um, during this season of diminished productivity, it's sometimes hard to know what to call it at this point. Um, one of the things I've noticed in conversations with other people is that being shut up in our homes, being unable to be economically productive and unable to have the sort of relationships that we're used to, being around other people, what it's, what's happened is it's led to, to deep Depression for some, uh, it's led to uh, a malaise for others where you just feel blah all the time. And, and I would be surprised if many of you in this room, the room right now could relate to that. But it's no wonder after being, in a sense, locked up for four months and nothing to do, Americans have begun to go a little bonkers. Our nation is turning into what feels like a tinderbox because there have been injustices in our land But it does not help that we have been living without a worldly purpose because it is debilitating. It is depressing. And massive swaths of our nation have been doing exactly that during this time. Being unproductive because we're supposed to be. All of of us need this. We need a thing greater than ourselves that is our reason for waking up. And we need a worldly purpose. Right? We see this in our worldly lives, but, but there's a deeper sense that we need this too. I was speaking to a friend who is not a Christian, and this was pretty close to the beginning of this whole thing. And he just, he just told me, he says, I have no reason to wake up each day. He says, I have no job. I don't get to see my girlfriend. I have no idea why I should even live. And he, he meant it. He wasn't necessarily feeling bad for himself. He was looking for an objective reason to exist. And on the one hand, I said, you know, I'm a preacher. You're saying, you're saying this to somebody who is going to give you an answer, whether you want to hear it or not. And I just told him, I said, you were created by God and you were made for a purpose that was bigger than money. You were made for a purpose that is bigger than having a girlfriend. Those things aren't bad necessarily. 
And those things aren't ultimate either, though. You were made for something that you can't lose. You, you could be locked up in a prison, unable to leave your tiny cell, and you can still live for the purpose that God created you for. You see, we live in a time when people want a reason to live. They, they want a purpose for waking up each day. But there are limits, right? I want a reason to live, but let it be one of my favorite things. Let it be one of the things that I, that I prefer. Um, let's do it within a certain uh, boundary that I set for myself, right? They want to give themselves purpose. And I think... If the last four months have taught us anything, it's that there are cracks in this idea that we can make a purpose for ourselves, right? Uh, You've been locked up by yourself all this time. Did you emerge uh, from four months of solitude with some deep insight about yourself that the whole world, if they only knew it, they would just be uh, happy people and fulfilled and have suddenly grace in their life and in their day? I think most people would tell you no. Being locked up by yourself does not produce incredible revelations. Because the purpose of life is not you by yourself living in your little bubble and doing things your way. People want to make their own reason for existence and they keep failing, but they keep trying. They don't want the reason for existence that God gives, which is to live for his glory. But that is the truth. That's why we wake up. And many people want to make it their own reason. They want to make up their own reason. And here's what Jesus does. He gives us a reason to live that can't be taken from us. He gives a reason to live that a governor can't shut down. He gives us a reason to live. He gives us a purpose in our lives that the governing authorities cannot touch no matter what they do. It can't change the circumstances. It can't change with the circumstances. It doesn't change with the economy. It doesn't change with our job status. It doesn't change with our relationship status. It doesn't change with our shifting social life. Even if we suffer, we suffer with meaning and purpose and direction. Right? We're like the Israelites. Even if we walk in the desert, we are walking in the light. Second, he says his followers will have the light of life. You see, there has to be more to life than just avoiding trouble and avoiding darkness. If, we, if we're going to have real spiritual vitality, we need something more. We need real life. We need real strength. Following Jesus means having a, a real, true, vital connection to the light, right? We have union with Christ when we put our faith in him. So when we put our faith in Jesus and we're united to him, we are united to the light. So that our most important need at every single moment is always taken care of. It doesn't change. It doesn't waver with the circumstances. Now, there are things that we worry about. There are concerns that we carry around in our lives. We're worried about work. We're worried about finances. We're worried about what the economy is going to look like. We're worried about protests. We're worried about issues of justice in our society, I hope. And And yet it says, what does God say in the word? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. In other words, set your eyes on exactly what you've been given to do. Be a disciple of Jesus. Follow him. Follow Jesus. Believe in Jesus. These other things that are, in a sense, distractions, or they can be distractions in many ways. Jesus says they will be added to you. But seek first his kingdom. And if you do that, he'll guide you faithfully to the very end. He says, you'll have the light 
of life. So what does Jesus tell us about his followers? They they don't walk in darkness. They have the light of life. And who Jesus is changes who we are. The better you understand Jesus, the better you understand who you are. And this contrasts with the third group that gets addressed here this morning, which is his enemies, right? Because in the, the passage, third, we find who his enemies are. You see, we don't get our identity uh, from Jesus. We don't just get our identity from Jesus when he befriends us in the gospel and makes peace with us. But Jesus also ends up shaping and forming the identity of people who oppose him too. Who Jesus is impacts those who deny him. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. So he's saying that they're going to seek him. There's like this vain searching that's going to happen on their part, but there's going to be a vanity in it. It's going to be this, uh, it's like like a story that doesn't have an ending. It's going to be this search that never concludes. Why is that? I think, I think part of the answer comes from Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.6. I don't usually like steering far away from the passage, but I think, I think Paul gets it here. He points out there are two kinds of responses that people have to Jesus. He says, to one kind of person, Jesus is a fragrance from death to death. To the other kind of person, Jesus is a fragrance from life to life. He, he basically splits us into two halves. He says, you're going to have somebody over here who thinks Jesus smells like death. You're going to be someone else over here. You're going to see someone else over here who thinks that Jesus smells like life. There are some people with a predisposition to resist and despise Jesus. They, they react to Jesus the same way that you and I would react if we smelled a dead animal. Uh, I don't see it much here in Mississippi, but when I was in Kansas, we had a lot of roadkill. And there was this truck that would drive around. It was like the dead wagon. And its job was just to pick up all the dead animals. And you did not want to get stuck behind the dead wagon in traffic. Oh, just the worst. Um, That's what I think of, right? (laughs) There there are people who are maybe they're interested in Jesus. but, But because he isn't who they really want him to be, he's going to stink like death to them when they meet him. And this happens in different ways. I'm talking about the spiritual, not the uh, actual dead wagon now. But spiritually, this happens when people hear true Bible preaching and they get upset from it, right? Um, They they hear uh, the Bible saying things to them like they're sinners, but they came here to be flattered. You know, (laughs) I came to church because I thought you were going to tell me how great I am so that I can go into another week and think great thoughts about me and feel encouraged. But you just said I'm a sinner today. And that's not a good feeling, right? And, uh, you know, they might go home and they say, man, that guy talked about sin an awful lot. That guy said that we had to repent. He sounds like one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. Um, why did, what happens there? Why does that, why is that kind of preaching gets rejected? It, it gets rejected because people are proud of themselves. Uh, people are proud. They want to be puffed up. They want to be told that they're fine just the way they are. And yet somebody who comes to the Bible and says, I have to explain this to you. And the thing that's going to be explained to you is not something that you want to hear necessarily. I'm going to have to tell you bad news about yourself, but I'm going to tell you good news about Jesus. And if you're, if you're the kind of person that wants to hear good news about yourself and bad news about Jesus, then, this is, then, then the Bible is not the book for you. What do they smell when they smell that Jesus? They smell the fragrance of death. See, this is not a, it's not a knowledge problem. Um, the same, the same 
uh, message gets preached to two different people. One person hears it and says, this is what I've been waiting all my life to hear. And then on the other hand, someone else hears the very same message and they think, I hate this. I hate this so much. Where can I find a church? Well, they'll tell me what I want to hear. Two very different responses to the same message. You see, the issue is not knowledge. The answer is that Jesus is objectively wonderful, but the problem is the human heart is bad and doesn't want to hear that. And so Jesus continues in verse 21. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. He he doesn't just say you don't have an option of coming. He actually says you cannot come. In other words, Jesus tells them that unbelief creates an incredible gulf that keeps people from him. Um, I mentioned that Jesus' enemies are shaped by him. They're shaped differently than the disciples are, but they're still shaped by Jesus, right? They're shaped in their denial. They're, they have to contort themselves to avoid the gospel, to make excuses for why they don't want to have anything to do with the things of God. You see this very vividly in the life of one of the most uh, profoundly unbelieving people that I think ever lived, and that was Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was an unbeliever, of course, and he was a writer, he was a philosopher, he wrote plays, um, but he was probably more advanced in his denial of Christ than many and was profoundly shaped by Jesus. Not because he loved Jesus or delighted in Jesus, but because he despised Jesus. And one of the things that Nietzsche was constantly trying to convey to the society he was writing to was, hey, look, all of this is built upon Christian ideals and Christian values. And so if we are going to reject God, we need to tear all of this down to the core. And so his call was for the world to throw off what he thought of as the shackles of Christendom once and for all so that human beings could live in a a new age of dead gods where only men walked the earth. That was Nietzsche's desire. The point, though, was as hard as Nietzsche worked to escape Christ, he wrote about Jesus constantly. He wrote a book called The Antichrist. And as much as he denied God, he is mostly known for his angry, vituperative denunciations of the God that he constantly was denying was out there. He was haunted. He was shaped by Jesus, even in his unbelief all his life. And Nietzsche died the way that he lived, adamant that the minister stay far from his house. He told his sister, I do not want the minister to come anywhere near my house. And so he died in madness from the syphilis he contracted, living the lifestyle that one lives. To live in denial of the light, you have to wear powerful blinders. Nietzsche wore powerful blinders. So did the Jews that Jesus was speaking to here. Now, unbelief isn't always as dramatic as this. When we think of unbelief, don't immediately in your head paint a caricature of unbelief. I want you to think of yourself because unbelief is something that we are always battling with in the Christian life. Unbelief is not as dramatic as writing denunciations of God. It can be as simple as refusing to acknowledge that God is right in front of you. Unbelief shows up at different times and in different ways. It shows up when we choose sin. It it shows up when we yield to temptation instead of choosing righteousness. It, It shows when we live in fear and anxiety. We all know unbelief in our lives to one degree or another that we need to repent of. Sometimes unbelief is, is very benign. You know, you might, you might seek him in your own way. 
trying to see him the way the world does. Uh, you want to see him as a good teacher, but not as, as God. You know, you sort of go to God and say, hey, here are the ground rules. This is how I'm going to follow you. That's unbelief, too. How do you seek Jesus? Do you seek him honestly or do you decide beforehand what he must be like if he's going to meet with your approval? If so, you may be going through the motions of a search, but you won't find him. Where he goes, you cannot follow, as he says here this morning, to all unbelievers. And the most serious and frightening consequence in all of this is those words here in this passage where Jesus says of unbelievers, you will die in your sins. He's painting the consequence here. He's showing us the consequence of all this. You see, the choice that Jesus gives is very straightforward, and both of them are set before us this morning. You will be shaped by Jesus. Will you be shaped by him in your belief and faith in him, or will you be shaped by him in your denial and in your unbelief? You see, we can be in our sins, or we can be in Christ. The question is, will we remain united to ourselves and our past and our ways to the many ways we violated God's law and opposed him all our lives, or will we be united to Jesus? The promise of the gospel here is so precious. Put your faith in Jesus. Come to God the Father. Trust in Christ as the mediator. When we're united to Christ by faith, not only do we find forgiveness for our penalty of, uh, for ourselves as our penalty of sin is lifted from our shoulders and laid upon the sun. But we will also find that his righteousness becomes ours. And we will experience true peace, walking in the light, living with a clean conscience, knowing that what we need most has been provided. Jesus is very clear this morning. This is the only way we can have that burden lifted. By doing what Jesus says... And believing the gospel. Follow me and you won't walk in darkness. Follow me and you won't die in your sins. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, sometimes we do forget that our lives are always being shaped by you. Either by our embrace of you and of your son or by our rejection of you and of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you help us to be those who really do listen to you and do place our faith in Jesus Christ alone? Would you do that supernatural work in each of our hearts that we need if we're ever going to know what it means to walk in the light and to be freed from our sins forever? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.